Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, everybody. Trace Blackmore here, the host of Scaling Up and Scaling Up Nation. I want to tell you that I am receiving a ton of emails saying how this show is making you a better water treater. You're telling me about things that you've done in the field that you necessarily haven't done before. Maybe you haven't thought about it that way. Maybe you were scared to try it. But because you are listening to this show, you are inspired to do things to answer questions about why. And that is how we make ourselves great at anything that we do. People can teach us the what to do. They can teach us the how to do it and we can learn those things. But the magic happens when we connect the why to the how and the what. When we understand why things happen the way they do, why things work the way they do, we simply elevate a task. My boss told me to do this, and I've done this every time. I have no idea why I'm doing it, but I'm checking off the box. But when we know the why, our tasks, our tests, all the things that we do to service start becoming tools to us. They allow us to look deeper inside the system and tell us what's going on. So my urge to everybody out there in the Scaling Up Nation is think about everything that you do and ask yourself, why do I do this thing? And if I don't know why, try to find out. You will be amazed at how much power that that will give you when you're trying to figure out what's going on day to day and especially when you are troubleshooting. If you can't figure out where to start, might I recommend your test kit? Pick a test out of your test kit and learn about the reagents and the chemistries that are taking place when you are doing those tests. When you learn why your tests work the way they do, you will start to realize things that you can do with your tests that you have never even imagined. They will not only save you time, they will give you greater insight about what is going on. So I hope, if you have not already, you are inspired to go out and start asking why to every single thing that you do. Folks, I'm really excited about today's show. We've got a really awesome guest. Of course, we always have awesome guests on this show, but this one is a water treatment hero. I'm not going to tell you who it is right now. I want to tell you in a second, but I do want to tell you that, again, a lot of people mentioned to me, how the heck do you read so many books? And I told you on the last show, I read very few books. I listen to a lot of books. This is a way that you can utilize your windshield time to start learning things that you want to learn about. And a great way to do that is signing up for Audible. Now, you can get 30 days free of Audible by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Audible, and you can try it out. What they're going to do, they're going to give you 30 days free, and they're going to give you one free book. So once you're done with that book, you'll have to go ahead and sign up for real to get a second one. But I am sure you're going to be as hooked as I am. 
try it out, and let me know what you think. I think it's one of the best tools that I use day to day. All right, I'm not gonna leave you in suspense anymore. We truly have a water treatment hero with us today. The gentleman who I am interviewing is Rob Ferguson of French Creek Software. Now, a lot of you are probably very familiar with WaterCycle. Now, if you're not familiar with WaterCycle, WaterCycle is a program where you could put your product in a modeling software, which is what WaterCycle is, and you can cycle it up, you can concentrate it up until it fails. And how cool is it to figure out failure points outside of your customer's system? So this is a really cool program. I'm sure if you're in a larger company, they're already using this. And I think you would be surprised if you started asking people if they were familiar with WaterCycle or ever used it. Most people do use it in the water treatment industry, and it really is a tremendous tool. Well, today, Rob's going to tell us how he started in the water treatment industry, how he came up with the idea of WaterCycle, and he's also going to explain for those that don't know what exactly WaterCycle is. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Rob Ferguson. My lab partner today is Rob Ferguson of French Creek. Rob, we're so glad to have you with the Scaling Up Nation today. How are you, sir? Doing just fine, and I'm very happy to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. Well, and I understand you are an avid listener of the show. I've been listened. <laughs> After the last AWT when you came around, I listened to all the back ones that I hadn't heard, and then I've been keeping up since then. Outstanding. You received the highest award that the industry could give out this past year, which was the Ray Baum Water Treater of the Year Award. That's a, just a fantastic honor. It was a high point. That and the cut several years ago in 2012, when Janet and I came up to the podium for the Supplier of the Year Award, which is probably more important because that means I'm taking good care of people. Well, I'm just so delighted to have somebody of your stature on this show. It just delights me. But I'm getting ahead of myself. There are probably a couple of people out there that, that don't know who you are, Rob. So do you mind introducing yourself to the Scaling Up audience? Well, probably most importantly, I'm a husband, father, Presbyterian elder, and am embarking on new careers after closing some old ones out. And give you an, also, I've always... Uh, tried to challenge myself with anything I'm doing. And to give you an idea of careers I'm closing out, once I turned 60 and had both knees replaced, I could no longer play hockey as a goalie. So I now went back to playing uh, old trumpet, trombone, euphonium after a 45-year-plus hiatus. Last time I pre played before I started again was President Nixon's second inaugural parade. So I try to keep myself interested in other things. Uh, next week, we're going on our third flower power cruise, which is all the oldies like uh, Grassroots, Canned Heat, Guess Who. They have like 24 on it. Wow. And this fall, we'll be going on our eighth malt shop cruise, which is all the oldies. So I'm into music, into family, uh, pretty much into church, and into friends with what I would consider a smaller, small circle. Many of them were in the industry. Rob, how did you get involved in the industry? 
I was working for a small soap company in Minneapolis doing everything in the world from formulating to registering products with EPA for disinfectants to uh, selling to training. And I got a phone call saying this company called Nelco was looking for someone who was aggressive to uh, work in some of the uh, new product areas. I flew down, talked to a gentleman named Art Friedman. And a couple weeks later, I went down and started at Nelco. So that's how I got into it. I came out of a soapers background, which is similar kind of chemicals, same polymers nowadays and many other things, a lot of overlap. And when I got to Nalco, it became very interesting. And probably one of your comments was, who has the biggest influence on me in this industry? That would have to be Art Friedman. Art adopted me more than hiring me, I think. And that continued until he passed away a while back. And uh, he trained me in a way that you aren't, I have never heard of someone being trained. I spent uh, a third of my time doing marketing stuff, a third of my time out in the R&D lab, and a third of the time doing software. But perhaps most important, instead of going through the equivalent of the Calgon T courses or the Nalco New Salesman classes and that, I had a two or three hour blackboard session a week with Art where he'd do things like say, okay, I don't want you to be able to just use the Lanzler index and all that. I want you to derive it. So go up the board and derive it. Then he'd have me read all sorts of different literature. He'd have me take a look at uh, different laboratory approaches versus what happens in the field. I travel with different salesmen, and I got a bunch of different projects. I was very fortunate in that a gentleman at the time named Tex Collins, who was the executive VP for Nalco, kind of took me under his wing and used me for projects that he wanted to get pushed that hadn't stopped. Apparently, I was a little bit more aggressive than a lot of the people in marketing or R&D you know, at the company at the time. So he essentially said, okay, we need this done. And Art talked to me, and uh, I take on a project like brewery pasteurizers and get that going. And they said, don't worry about whose toes you step on. We'll cover your rear end and uh, send a cleanup crew after you. And that's how I got started in this industry. And there, I ran into a bunch of other good people I still keep in touch with. You were talking about the Ray Baum Award, Jim Scott. Uh, Jim uh, taught me how to survive in a corporation from the seven martini lunch to getting your customers and your salesmen the information they need in spite of company regulations. Al Bassett, another Ray Baum Award winner, taught me about the importance of drinking samples of prototypes for the New Light beer at Miller at 10 in the morning in the plant manager's office. So I used to travel with Al too. So at Nalco, I had a plethora of really good people to work with. Dr. Art and Jim Scott, Al Bassett, and many others. So that's how I got into the industry. All right. And then you started a company called French Creek. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, French Creek was started more out of frustration than anything else. And I went from Nalco. I was kind of a corporate lady of the night. I went from Nalco to a company called Apollo and set up a water group for them. They were all utilities. 
they were acquired and taken as a tax write-off. By the way, we uh, I got married during that time, bought a house, and had a baby. And we moved to uh, Mogul to set up a power group for them because they wanted to get into something bigger. Six months after we got there, we had salesmen in the field, products, equipment, and sitting in the corporate chemist's office for Texas Power and Light, got a phone call saying, don't accept the purchase orders. Dexter had a bad quarter, and they're dissolving your group and all other venture groups. Oh, wow. That's not the call you want to get. Well, no. And then I went to Calgon to take over the computer group in time for a uh, five-year Merck acquisition and a five-year wage freeze. That was another baby, by the way, in another house. Many of you may know Baron. He was our uh, Calgon baby. <laughs> uh, Robbie was our Apollo baby. And Alexis was our mogul baby. But anyway, I went from Calgon to Chemlink, just in time for the acquisition of what we call the cannibalistic holding company from hell. Uh, that was when Arco sold off all the industries. And they wanted us to move to Houston. Now, we had enough of a cultural clash in our marriage. I grew up in northern Minnesota, where you pick up hitchhikers, where you talk to people in the grocery store lines, things like that. My wife, Janet, grew up in uh, northern Jersey, about 45 minutes west of the GW Bridge, which is a little bit different. We figured we would not survive moving to Houston with Baker. So back when Apollo was taken as a tax write-off in 82, I was pretty young. I still had brown hair. And a gentleman named Ira Kukin said, you know, you're really doing some stuff with this automatic controlling equipment with the software and that. If you want to start your own company, I'll be happy to bankroll you. I said, you know, Doc, I don't have enough gray hair. People are not going to believe a young 30-year-old, you know, on this kind of stuff, which is pretty much advanced to what people are doing in this industry. So I'm going to wait a while, but I'll keep you in mind. It came to be time for us to look for something else, and we wanted more control in our life than the 80s and all the corporate acquisitions, layoffs, and so on. Sweetie so started to start her own company. So I took over the spare bedroom and wrote the first version of Water Cycle. First off, reason we got into Water Cycle, I was looking for a marketing niche that would be vertical market, very narrow, that would be something that could really help customers out. I'm not the best salesman in the world, and I wanted a product that would sell itself. And that would be like an insurance policy where you kept getting uh, revenues in it. We call them annual maintenance. So, first version of Water Cycle was written to give small companies the ability to compete with Nelco, Betts, and those that had the 20, 30 person programming staff and the ability to come up with university grade software for sales and support tools. So, we wrote the first version of Water Cycle. And just as an aside for anyone who uh, knows our software, as I was getting done with that, you know, this isn't very visual. Bear in mind, this was in 1989 in the DOS days. So I thought, I'm going to, how the overall approach is, don't go for the worst case scenario like most water treaters do now. Do the entire operating range of pH, temperature, concentration ratio, whatever you're looking at, and display it graphically with color coding so you don't have to have a PhD in PCAM to figure out what's going on. Blue good, red bad. So I took an extra two weeks and wrote the 
code for the 3D graphics and the 2D graphics and putting it out in, for the time, proposal-ready you know, art. And took a week's vacation, which they didn't want me to take, and went down to, uh, you ever hear of a group called AWT? I believe I have heard of them. Okay. Well, I uh, decided to test market with water treatment companies, people who are entrepreneurs who would realize if this was any good or not and let me know right offhand. I had a booth between B.F. Goodrich, now Lubrizol, and Roman Haas, now Dow. Neither one of them has been sold in the last week, have they? <laughs> and so I was kind of a buffer. We had our first sale with good old Warren Knorr, but more importantly, the first person to pay his bill was Jack Seust. And if you've ever started a company up, you'll appreciate that. And Jack also became kind of a mentor and beta tester for us over the years. We also uh, met a gentleman named John Zabrita at this place. Uncle John has been on the show. Ah, good. Uh, anyway, Uncle John, by the way, here's a plug for Uncle John. When the nominations come up for uh, Ray Bomb for this year, Think about all the contributions John has made to our industry, chemical industry in general, and customers. Because it's lonely being the only one who's had supplier of the year and Ray Bomb. So I would urge you to think about John in that context. But anyway, we didn't think much of John. We just talked to him. We looked at our stuff and smiled. About a week later, kitchen phone rang. That was when you had a real telephone in your house. We picked it up, and it was a guy named John Zabrita. I wasn't there. Talked to Janet about how great our stuff was, and hey, wanted to uh, talk to people about it. In the meantime, in between then, coming back from AWT and that phone call, I'd gone into uh, Baker and resigned. And we had uh, set up an office you know, in our house and uh, started promoting the programs. Short time later, we went into a incubator run by Penn State and Wharton jointly, under funded by the Ben Franklin Technology Center of Southeastern Pennsylvania. Now it's about a oh twenty minute drive from here. I had to go in there because my wife kicked me out of the house when I put an accounting computer on the dining room table. And with three babies eighteen months apart, I had uh books lined up at the top of the stairs by the railing and we were just out of space for having a business. So we were in the incubator for about nine months and got a lot of support, a lot of good people helping us with business plans and things like that. And by the way, at that time, we were in an entrepreneurial fair, and we would have been, uh, they tell us, the most outstanding, most likely to succeed company. But we got into one of those torrential rainstorms and got there just after uh, all the presentations. So we got best business plan based on our business plan. But uh, after about nine months, they kicked us out because we were growing too fast. So we moved into a building in Kimberton, rented, and we're there until about, oh, seven years ago now, we bought a building so we could have a laboratory. So that's pretty much how French Creek got started. Well, Rob, I know there's a lot of listeners out in the Scaling Up Nation that know exactly what water cycle is and what it can do, but there are also some out there that don't know what water cycle is. Do you mind giving us a very basic view on what your program does? Not at all. 
what the program does, it takes a water treater away from the worst case scenario, one water analysis, and this is what the book told me to do. It gives you the opportunity to do a full system simulation on a cooling tower. How far can you cycle it? At what point do you get different scales? What treatments are going to work? At what point are they going to fail? Am I going to get silica at the cold end? Am I going to get calcium carbonate at the high end? What other things are going to happen? What's going to interfere with my inhibitors? So overall, the whole water cycle series is used for many different things. On the most basic level, I'll give an example. Some of our first customers were power plants. Power plant chemists like Dr. Dave Morgan, he was the chief chemist for Pennsylvania Power and Light Nuclear. He said that uh, water cycle paid for itself before he even loaded it. I said, well, how could that happen? He said, well, I had the uh, manual behind my desk when vendors came in to talk to us about uh, Susquehanna and a bid for there. So we'd had bids before all the way from 20000 a year to a half million a year. And you know which one purchasing wanted us to take. But And he said, they came in there. I know they noticed the water cycle manual in the back because when these bids came in, they were all within 20% of each other. He said they knew there was going to be a scientific basis for you know the treatments and the levels. And he said, just by doing that, it kept purchasing off my back. I got a treatment that's going to work. And it paid for itself in the time because nobody highballed me. They're all reasonable bids. So on the end user basis, the programs, we have a basic program that doesn't do anything really with uh, oh treatments outside of acid and alkalize. It just tells you what's going to happen with your water chemistry as far as corrosion and scale as you concentrate it. That's used by a lot of consultants and by end users, your, your water doctors in different corporations to evaluate their systems, find out what their problems are, and to try things outside of the box. What happens if I mix these waters and I use that for makeup? What happens if I get rid of my RO concentrate or brine by blending it with my normal makeup water and getting rid of it in the cooling tower? What new problems am I going to have? And so that's the end users. Water treatment salesmen will use it to tell a story. First off, They'll be able to evaluate a system, find out what's going to happen as far as scale, corrosion. They don't have to be a supercomputer user. Um, they don't have to be a physical chemist. They just have to be able to put it in, cycle it, and have some idea of water treatment that you can pick up in most water treatment service companies. It's also a flight simulator for new water treaters. Give them water cycle, let them cycle it up, see where things fail. It's much better to do it on a computer and have your graphs turn red than do it in the plant manager's air conditioning cooling tower and have his face turn red. So that's another use. R&D people use it to formulate. And one of the things we talk about is, it used to be back when I was a business unit manager for Arco Performance, someone would come in and they wanted us to try a new chemical. And run it through our lab and put it into our formulations. Back then, the standard response is we'll put it in the queue. We don't have a real overbearing urge to change it. We're happy with what we have right now, but we'll take a look at it. Nowadays, 
uh, people develop a performance model with failure points for their own inhibitors, you know, your polymer suppliers, your phosphonate suppliers, your new corrosion inhibitor suppliers. And they'll say the customers nowadays are more likely to say, do you have a water cycle model or do you have a downhole sap model if you're in oil field? Do you have a hydrodose model if you're in RO or a mine sap model if you're in mining? Same thing for you, you know, municipal. So that's changed. And then on the upper level, there's addition to the program where you could take 40 years of what I call experiential data, what works and what doesn't. You could take uh, laboratory data and studies. For instance, one of the models we have for corrosion rate prediction is all of, uh, they don't mind if I say Buckman Laboratories blanks from corrosion studies over 40 or 50 years that were given to me by a gentleman named Pete Zissen when we were on NACE T3A17, the indexes committee. Very broad range of hardness, chloride and sulfate, pH and temperature. I use that to develop a model for 1010 carbon steel corrosion. Well, Rob, let me ask you this. So the software is out there. People know that it can predict performance on products with different waters. You're kind of getting into that. But really, how do you develop these models so the software can actually predict these things? Well, there's several ways. And I'll go way back. Uh, What I like is, first off, what I call an experiential model. One training class, I had the same question. I said, well, let's take a look at if you can do this. And we had guys who have been in the industry since the old straight chromate days. And we had some who were new and, you know, wanted to push molybdate and all that other good stuff. And I said, okay, let's develop what I call an experiential model based on what you've done that works. And I said, okay, let's talk about, you know, phosphate. If you're feeding phosphate alone, and I asked them what the different levels would be for different water chemistries. And they wrote down different values. And I said, how about a 4-to-1 phosphate zinc or a 7-to-1 phosphate zinc? What are you going to do there? And they came up with, you know, what they thought would work. And lo and behold, if we put that into a uh, lab edition, we could come up with a reasonable practical model based on what people were actually doing within a company. So that's one way. That's like taking what you have historically in your user manuals and turning it into a dosage. So that's on, I'll call it the low-tech end, but the most practical end. Then there's companies like, uh, well, many of the polymer companies from the time we started this, Sunshi gave me free access to their lab notebooks. They would run tests if I wanted them to, and they'd supply data of water chemistry, minimum effective dosage, last time before failure, and you take that kind of data, and I'd spec out what else I wanted to see and kind of validate it. After a while, you can kind of smell if somebody's dry labbing, or shall we say embellishing their data. We actually didn't encounter too much of that. And so you can do it that way. As of late, we have people who are using some of the models that have been developed for the basics, like polyacrylic acid and so on, if you go to FrenchCreeksoftware.com in the online library, it's a paper I did with, I'm trying to think if they were FMC then or Great Lakes or BWA, but Pat Sullivan and some other people from uh, what's now BWA. And that was essentially on using this kind of software 
to take a look at different molecular weight fractions for a polymer, develop a crude model, compare them, and see what you wanted to zero in on for your final product. So there are many different levels of developing models, from the practical to the heavy-duty experimental design. And if you go to the same online library, you'll find articles that talk about some very basic research, what I call applications research, really. At what point do inhibitors fail? How do you test for that under different conditions? What happens to an inhibitor at different pHs? For instance, there are a couple papers presented at AWT and other places on this that we did. I did some myself and some with Ms. Chelsea Standish, who's been doing a lot of laboratory-type work with me. And there, we found that uh, the dissociated form of inhibitors is the active form. So as you get to lower and lower pH and more protonation of your inhibitor, you have less of it in an active form, which gets kind of interesting and explain many things. I don't know if you guys know uh, Les Norman. You may know his daughter a lot better. I think she had something to do with AWT at one time also. Yes, Bernadette was the president of AWT, I believe, two years ago. Yes, but she didn't have her Norman name anymore. She changed it. Bernadette Cohen. So that explains a lot of things I've seen where it seemed like uh, you needed more inhibitor at lower pH than you'd expect. And so what I try to do to make sure models are good is first, I like failures. I like failure points so I can see, okay, what's the saturation ratio for the scale is causing the problem? Then I want to know what the dosages are. I want to know if they've tried many, many different doses just to the obnoxious high levels and see if we can come up with good field failure points to validate. Validate's a good keyword for any of these kind of models through practical experience. And that's essentially where the models come from. They may be different for corrosion. For instance, for corrosion rates, you may want a water, a whole bunch of waters, but you may start out with a water chemistry, find out what your corrosion rates are by whatever method you want. I like, you know, correlator type data, linear polarization type data. And then put in your inhibitor at different levels and plot, monitor it, plot it, and find out what you essentially equilibrate at if you come close to equilibrating for corrosion rate, so you can get a model of corrosion rate as a function of water chemistry and inhibitor level. Or probably more importantly for us, as water treaters, you want to come up with, okay, this is, if, this is the cost to get five mils per year. That's your dosage. This is your cost to drop it to two and a half. And this is what it's going to take to get below one on mild steel. So you can develop models and I don't think anybody's going to claim 100% accuracy, particularly if you've ever watched uh, one-day, seven-day, 14-day, 30-day, and two-year coupons to see how they vary. But you at least get good relative values for corrosion rates. There's a lot that more we can go into. What I would say, and this is to AWT people who may not look at what goes on in the world of oil field, a lot of good research has been done on this by outside groups. Rice University's Bryan Consortium. Mason Thompson started doing this about the same time I did in the early 70s. Uh, you find Harriet Watt University does some good work and some of the other universities around the world. 
as far as different tests for different industries, but uh, most of the data applies. So that's pretty much where the models come from and what the different levels of the software is used for. I want to end with one thing on the models and that and the software. Jim Scott uh, went, I guess, full circle back at Nalco, who was my boss for a while when he was a product manager and I was a product specialist. Then he was using Watercycle to sell, oh, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And he called me up laughing. He said, you know, I just did a Watercycle proposal for a HVAC system, decent sized one. And I was a retired Navy chief. And he looked at the 3D graphs and he said, I don't understand it, but I want it. <laughs> I guess if you've ever had Xerox professional selling skills, you know, that's a buying indicator right there. Well, Rob, what would you say your biggest accomplishment is? Staying married for 36 years. I hear that. And not just staying married, but she's also my business partner. And you guys work well together. We certainly do. Uh, she would describe it as a roller coaster with its ups and downs. For instance, in the early days, I would uh, supplement our French Creek income with doing high school games as an umpire and Legion games as an umpire. So we had our moments there, you know, most startups do. Uh, that was 30 some years. That was 30 years ago, though. That's a little different. 29 years. I'm embellishing. We've only <laughs> been around 29 years on March 3rd. That's a great accomplishment. And then I've got three kids who are pretty good accomplishments. Many of you have met Baron. I also has an older brother, Robbie, and my former uh, laboratory person who decided to have babies instead of work, uh, Alexis, Dr. Alexis. So they're accomplishments. Other accomplishments, I would say my greatest business accomplishment is taking advanced physical chemistry that scares and ticks off petroleum engineers that kind of wasn't used a whole lot by a bulk of the industry because it's just too complex and making it available in a format that was easy to use and easy to interpret the data and really taking... I think we had a big impact on taking the industry from uh, the single point water recommendation to what Jasper Gill would call a holistic treatment approach, where you look at the overall operating range and what's going on. Another accomplishment, probably the one that I'm most proud of, and it's probably least known, is they did the first online real-time controller that makes what's gone used now still look like toys. Back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, impounded lake cooling. Imagine a lake, million, million and a half gallons a minute once through, pH changing 1.2 units in 24 hours due to algal respiration, chewing up and spitting out CO2 with three or four surface condensers on the lake which is built for one. Scale would derate him, do all this other stuff. And if you use the worst case approach, you know, the highest dosage for the highest pH of the day and so on, it would be pretty expensive when you're talking million, million and a half gallon a minute on a once through basis. So back in 1980, we put 12 thermocouples across each condenser outlet to good, good outlet temperature, interlocked with a number of circulators online 
for residence time, had operators or chemists run uh, water analysis, things that change slowly want to shift. And things that change quickly, like pH, we had pH probes and the like and so on. Once uh, every 15 minutes, we had a PLC, program logic controller, that would pull the sensors, bring in the fast changing data, pass that on to a mil-spec Z80 processor for any total nerds out there who know what a Z80 is. A mil-spec Z80, and that little uh, process computer would calculate saturation ratios, calculate a dosage, validate all the inputs and stuff, send a four to 20 to the pumps, and write an SPC database point. And that was in 1980. Did a paper with a gentleman, no relationship, and his name was uh, Brian Ferguson from Texas Power and Light on that. And I think that was one of my best accomplishments. Something that sort of is like that. There's very little we say about our customers or who they are, but by contract, I can talk about one controller. Uh, you may have noticed that when a 3D tracer rig starts up, it says initializing French Creek. So I feel like as far as accomplishments, I've had a pretty big impact on online control. Well, that definitely sounds like you have. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen in water treatment over the years? The biggest change I've seen, and what I say has to change for the back the other way, is that I don't believe that companies like GE Betts, Nalco, Ecolab Nalco, and all the big companies are providing the training, technical training they used to, like the Calgon T courses. And I think that uh, one of the things AWT does with the CWT program is it helps get people to learn what these companies should have t taught them before they went on their own, if they didn't pick it up themselves. So one of the biggest changes is I don't think that uh, technical training with the majors is what it used to be. The chemicals might be the same. For instance, you might take a treatment and call it continuum, meaning the same old stuff. But uh, you'll find there's different uh, approaches to it. People now are trying to find the limits. I think the biggest difference is, is computers in water treatment. When we first started, we'd have guys like Skip Lyle who had trouble with Macs, and they learned to use a computer just so they could use something like water cycle to sell. Nowadays, you have nerds. I mean, people who understand computers and can use them, who are applying them, their own spreadsheets, their own SPC databases, and things like this. So that's another change. I think those would be the biggest changes I've seen. And those are not what you might expect, but I've been very disappointed with uh, training and you mentioned the Ray Baum Award. One of the things I tried to stress in the acceptance speech is that all us old farts, the old timers, should take at least one young kid under their wing and mentor them. And by mentoring, I mean tell them about the failures that we had that helped us learn about treating. You know, just be a mentor like Art was to me. Well, Rob, I hope it's apparent in this show, one of the things I'm trying to do is exactly that, bring people to new water treaters, new to the industry, to people like yourself, even though they may never meet you. So hopefully the words that you're saying here today is going to do that very thing. 
What are some things you do to troubleshoot issues with formulations? Okay, troubleshooting formulations. First off, when I'm troubleshooting, I'm looking at why they aren't necessarily working well or how to make them work better. I'm not looking so much as why your surfactants float to the top and salt out. So I'm not looking at product stability. I'd be looking at ratios. The things I look at is what happens when you blend two inhibitors together. And here again, I'm going to pick on some papers that have been presented at AWT on the impact of ratio of like polymolecular hydride and PBTC on the failure point and how if you have the right ratio, you can go a higher saturation level. You can go a higher glandular index, however you want to call that driving force. And so I'll look at a formulation from that perspective. I'll look at a formulation as far as what are you trying to do with this, okay? And that are you trying to come up with something that's from marketing, so it has some marketing pizzazz, something you can uh, say that's special about it, like give you an example, polymolecular and hydride and PBTC or HEDP versus uh, just straight HEDP or HEDP PAA. What's the big difference? You got a lot bigger safety factor in small systems. And if you're doing a BOF lance cooling, if they still exist, or cooling exchangers that where you have nucleate boiling, you're going to want to go the extra safety factor. So that's the type of thing I do is matching formulations to that. You'll find some AWT papers on uh, that kind of thing also that have been done in the past. I did some. Bob Cavano did some. And this is just another side. Don't think that you can't look at what's been done in the past instead of reinventing the wheel. You can refine that wheel, but there's no need to reinvent a lot of it. That's a great point. Rob, what are some of the things you see water treaters do that you just want them to stop doing? Sampling. The biggest thing I run into with the water treaters really have to do with analytical chemistry. And this may be more with oil field people. A lot of people don't know that we do as much or more in oil field than we do in cooling water. Big thing is, if you take a sample and you send it back to your lab and it sits for a day, and then they open it up and it sits in a beaker for a while, and then you run a pH, how accurate is that? Not very. It's like if you have Coke in a bottle, Coca-Cola, or just about any soda, or pop if you're in the Midwest, whatever you want to call it, it may have a pH close to phosphoric acid in that bottle. What happens when you open the cap? CO2. Your pH rises. Your pH of your sample can change a whole lot. Bacteria can chew things up and create acids that drop your pH, destroy some of your alkalinity. Uh, biggest one is if you're sampling a system like an RO system that's under pressure, you may want to uh, get a sample under pressure before that CO2 flashes. So sampling and doing accurate sampling is what I would emphasize. I enjoy watching Mr. Golden's epistles on sampling and analytical as far as this type of thing also. You're, of course, referring to Chris Golden, who has also been on the show. Ah, yes. So that would be one thing. Another thing is the biggest problems I encounter, and I'm not going to say they're problems, they're really tech support, 
will be a question, why is the uh, Lanzer index that's calculated just as a side in your program different than the one I had? And I said, check your analytical units. The biggest mistake has to do with not checking the analytical units when you get a report from an outside lab. Utilities, you get calcium as calcium. NALCO may put out calcium as calcium carbonate, and you have all sorts of different ways of expressing things. Rob, if you don't mind, explain to the Scaling Up Nation exactly what you're talking about, how different things are expressed. Okay, I'll, I'll pick on calcium carbonate and or calcium. Calcium, when it's expressed as the ion, you know, as calcium, let's say you have 40 milligrams per liter of calcium as calcium. That's going to be, with a minimum round-off error, 100 ppm as calcium carbonate. Or if you look up the appropriate other factors, if you go to the North Sea, you'll see uh, German degrees of hardness. And it's been a few years since I saw French degrees of hardness. You may get a uh, analysis that comes out of some laboratories where they'll give you EPM instead of PPM. So it's like saying, okay, I'm six feet tall, or I'm so, so many meters tall, or I weigh uh, way too much, let's say 300 pounds, or how many stones is that? There's different way of expressing a value, a quantity. It's like if you wanted to be facetious, and I actually had to do this once, you can express a density in grams per milliliter. You could also express it as stones per cubic light year. You really, you really did that. Uh, that was a uh, professional chemistry fraternity initiation question. <laughs> and you celebrate May the 4th too, correct? That's the ultimate in nerddom. The point here is know what your analytical units are. And that's why we have it set up so you can cheat and press a button that has the different water treatment service companies analysis formats, you know, the bigger labs, or you can enter your own. That's going to be some great information. I know we've got water treaters of all different parts of their career. So uh, I think now they are going to heed your advice. They're going to make sure that they understand, one, what they are reporting and when they look at other reports, what those people are reporting. So they are, in fact, comparing apples to apples. Rob, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on. But I would like to ask you a couple lightning round questions before you go. Okay. All right. So lightning round. Are these really doubles where I get double the money? Yes, yes. Double the point value. Good. This is, uh, this is where you could double your scores. So uh, answer carefully. First lightning round question, if you could go back in time and talk to your former self on your first day at French Creek, what advice would you give yourself? I would to trust myself, trust my instincts, and to make as many contacts within the industry as I could, rely on friends, and work with others, you know, I don't necessarily agree with uh, a lot that our former president said, but I do agree that no matter how hard you work to start up a business, you probably did not do it all alone. I'm not going to say the government helped out, but other people have. I had uh, Art Friedman, who was kind of a mentor up to his death, Rod Surgent, 
one of the originals in Great Lakes uh, Chemical, who's been a mentor. Many other people have worked with us on a, from a business perspective and that, and that's to don't try to do everything yourself. Uh, also, stick with AWT and network. Great advice. And look outside your industry. If you're a cooling water person, look and see what they're doing in oil field because they're doing similar kind of research with similar kind of inhibitors. Look at what they're doing in municipal. Look at what they're doing in uh, RO. Even look at what they're doing with those cooling towers under pressure they call boilers. Cooling towers under pressure. I love it. Rob, what are the last three books that you've read? Okay. Uh, Pride, the first one that comes to mind is I reread the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. I probably reread that every five years. It's probably 3,000 pages of books in the whole series. But it's one of my favorite ones. I like escape literature. Other ones, uh, oh, Jack Reacher books. I do, I've read a couple of those. And I don't necessarily read the whole book, but the last book that I've probably used most in the last month would be Aquatic Chemistry by Stum and Morgan. I actually used to give that out as Christmas presents. For instance, I gave a copy of that to Mr. Zabrita one year as for a Christmas present. I'm sure he loved it. And that's a book I would recommend any water treater get for a reference. Rob, when they make a movie about your life, who plays Rob? Harrison Ford. Of course. Of course. Why wouldn't he? But not as Indiana jo Jones, because Indy wasn't as good a goalie as I was. <laughs> and I think he has the gray hair to pull it off. Well, my last question for you, if you could talk to anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? Probably two people who I feel had the most impact on the world as we know it. Jesus of Nazareth and Leonardo da Vinci. They both probably had more impact on Western civilization than anyone. Christ, as far as religion and just molding what's happened in this world. Leonardo da Vinci as a Renaissance man, the prototype of the Renaissance man, actually, who delved in, he took from one science and applied to another. He took art and applied it to science. And if I were to look at someone, I never thought of it this way until right now, but uh, the approach I've taken to problem solving is looking outside of my own area of expertise and seeing if there's something else that would help. And that's what Leonardo da Vinci did. He was an artist, he was a scientist, and a philosopher. And Dan Brown made good movies about him. <laughs> well, Rob, this was an incredible interview. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure the Scaling Up Nation learned a lot. I want to thank you for all the contributions that you've made to the water treatment community over the years. And I want to thank you for coming on Scaling Up. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Folks, I got to tell you, Rob Ferguson has probably forgotten more knowledge about water treatment than I will ever know. This is one of the reasons that I started this show. Some of the people that have really blazed the path for us to be in water treatment, I wanna make sure that we can get inside their head for just about an hour and 
find out what they went through when they started out and then how they came up with whatever they did with their contribution to the water treatment industry. And I hope you heard it because my number one takeaway from this, because I work with a lot of new people in water treatment, was Rob saying when he went out, when he first got into the industry, and he was worried that he did not have enough gray hair and nobody was going to take him seriously. Well, Rob, I love you. You got plenty of gray hair now and everybody out there will listen to you because you have proved yourself. And folks, that's the point that I hope that is getting across to you. It's not about how much gray hair that you have. It's the fact that you want to get something done. You want to help a customer. You want to learn something and you are proving yourself along the way. So the next time you get a little down because you're a little younger in the industry and you think somebody isn't listening to you because of that, remember Rob Ferguson had that problem too. And Rob, just as me, says that the CWT is one of the best things that you can do to springboard your career, your knowledge, how people take you seriously within the water treatment industry. So by all means, keep focusing on your certified water technologist designation. It'll help you all around. And the last thing that I want to mention that he mentioned because it came up on previous shows is sampling. Folks, please realize that when you take a sample, it is not the end-all be-all of what's in the system. It's just what's happening in that particular sample that you grabbed right then and there. And Rob points out that if you send that off to a lab and it takes 10 days for them to test it, it's not going to be as accurate as if you took it right there. More importantly, the results that they give you are going to be at least 10 days old on a system that's no longer circulating that water. So I will encourage you to run all the tests you can on site because that's where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. You can make adjustments right then and there. And depending on how large the system is, you might be able to make an adjustment and test it again that same day to verify what it is that you did. So not only understanding how your tests work, which we talked about on a previous show, but understanding the best way to take a sample. And of course, it's always best to take a sample and do your testing right there. Folks, this show was a lot of fun for me to talk to Rob and something that I wanna leave you with, I want to do another Pinks and Blues show. So all I'm gonna do is answer the questions that you find folks in the Scaling Up Nation are asking me. And the only way I can do that is for you to ask me questions. Now, when I do a show like that, I deplete my question bank and that makes me nervous. So please let me know what you want to hear me talk about and I'll make sure to do that. I sure do love bringing this show to you, and I sure am glad that you are listening to Scaling Up. I look forward to talking with you next time. Have a great week, folks.